0: Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own, with your host, Douglas Isles.
1: I'm delighted to be joined today by David Williams. David has over 20 years experience working in the private and for-purpose sectors, spanning diverse roles from global senior management to field operations and delivery. In the for-purpose sector, he has had the privilege of working alongside people and communities as they overcome the challenges they face in Australia and around the world. Among his achievements was starting a social enterprise in Tanzania to support community development and marine conservation. So, Dave, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Doug. You um, have had some interesting experiences in life. You're an Anglo-Australian. You've worked in the most amazing array of countries. Let's start by talking about
0: racism that's a, uh, a, a an interesting question to raise at the beginning I think um I think working in lots of those different contexts forces you in some way to think about who you are, where you're from, what your cultural heritage is and and the baggage that that represents in different contexts. Um, and I think it took me a long time in my life to it, it dawned on me that, I think we're all inherently racist, call it unconscious bias or whatever you'd like to, yeah. um, That that isn't necessarily something to shy away from and, and feel worried about. It's something to to realize, take on and then lean into, understanding how you react to people who are different and then seeing that almost as a long-term health condition. That's something that you're constantly working at, not to get paranoid or insecure about, but constantly working at to realize how you express that consciously or unconsciously with other people. So is there a trigger
1: that brought
0: you to that realization? Yeah, I would have to say uh, I, I felt like I was on a trajectory of understanding lots of different cultures and respectful and and really uh, deeply um, engaged in connecting with different cultures and different places and contexts. And I think part of that was through learning languages, and I saw that as a... A, a really fun, interesting way to then really get a different level of understanding of of a different place and a different people, um, and I, I got a bit addicted to that, and I picked up these different languages and, and lived in these different places and loved that. And I think by doing that at the time, I, I thought, "Wow, I've I've really got this. I think I've overcome any of these cultural barriers. I think I'm a I'm a quite different person." The language always rubs off on you. The culture always rubs off on you, depending on how how long you stay in the place, particularly very different places. But then it wasn't until I met my wife back in Brazil, after I'd lived there many years before, and we created a life together, ended up getting married, had kids in her hometown, kids growing up there, that... I think she helped me realize, uh, there are very, I was just on bubbling around on top of the surface of unconscious bias and racism and understanding myself. I think she helped me realize in, in, in quite a careful and sensitive way over many years when you live in, in the pocket of someone who's, who's different from a different cultural setting, they then take you to a different level of understanding of yourself yeah. and of something like raci- racism and unconscious bias. She's an afro woman yeah. uh, from northeast of Brazil, very different cultural context. We only speak Portuguese and so you're you're constantly pulled into a different way of being, different way of thinking and then forced, hopefully in a nice way, yeah. to, to reflect on yourself.
1: It's interesting because you're in that culture as well. So you become the outsider yeah, you're challenging. I guess how you behave towards outsiders, or to to others, to people who are different. So, yeah, maybe just talk it through. I guess what it felt like. So from both sides, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I think um, there are many ways in which you can uh, carelessly express racism and unconscious bias every single day. Yeah. And I think there are few opportunities to really unpick in a very detailed way what you've just said or how you might have just misstepped or how the other person might have received a well-intentioned conversation set of words that came out of your mouth. If you're married to someone or very close to someone over many, many years, you actually have the time and space to have those conversations right to the bottom to then understand exactly where you're at, and where the other person is at. In this case, my beautiful wife, uh, and our different perspectives, and, and we're still working on that. We, we've we've been together for many, many years, married for twelve, and uh, I, I I get the feeling we're just scratching the surface, and and that that makes me think always, what about all those other people who I've interacted with from my own culture, from different cultures, all the way all through all these years in these different places what was i missing what were the cues what was the lack of understanding what was the what was the barrier that i was probably unaware of or didn't really have the time to to dig into even if i had a sense in the back of my mind that it was there so i think it's a it's a process of very slow patient uh long conversations to deeply understand someone at successive levels and and it will never end there's no destination but we don't get the chance to do that so often, so I guess what do you take from that that you
1: can put into practice? You said, we carry this baggage. Um, so there's probably two things to unpick is what's that baggage you think you carry and then and then, how do you interact with those who you don't get the opportunity to to spend 12 years with? Sure,
0: sure. I, th- I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, very proud of who I am and my heritage, so it's not like I have a sense of feeling ashamed or, or anything like that. Um, but you clearly come from a very specific context, everyone does, and my context, being a white Anglo-Celtic male of a, of a certain generation, in a developed country means that you, you carry uh, extreme amounts of, of, of sort of uh, latent power, authority, whether you like it or not. Okay. And so I'll give you an example of that. You walk into a bank in Brazil or anywhere, anywhere in Latin America, you know, people have got shotguns on the outside. Very, very violent countries. Sometimes, unfortunately, very beautiful countries, but very insecure. A lot of, a lot of low level violence throughout the country. And you walk into a bank with flip flops, pair of board shorts and a singlet. And no one, no one will question you yeah. whatsoever. It, let's take Bahia, you know, Salvador in Brazil where, where we lived if you walk in there with a suit on and you're really dark skinned black from a place that's probably 95% people who are black, you, you know, the security guard's gonna give you the full going over. Um, and, and so that that's a certain amount of baggage. It's a very positive thing for for people who are on the sort of lucky side of the ledger not to be questioned, um, but that that's a fact.
1: So yeah, So so then how do you deal with people I guess now, having had the benefit of these twelve years of, of conversations with your wife, when you meet an, a new individual, if you like, from a different background, is it has it changed the way that you that you interact, or is it just
0: internal? I, I would hope it has. I would hope it has. I, I probably am much slower to jump to conclusions. I'd, I'd hope to. I'd like to think I am, and uh, we, we'll. Seek in a way will be open and live to what the different perspective is of the person in front of me. And if I hear something that's completely left field, can't understand it, the natural reaction is to sort of reject, reject, and and explain in in yourself to yourself very quickly ten reasons why that's the wrong thing. I don't do that. That's different from me. I'm going to reject it. So then it's stalling that reaction for just a minute and trying to hold the space to understand someone a little bit better and and good things come from that so i think that's that's really positive uh i hope that these kinds of learnings being married to my wife and being in these different places has has then heightened my awareness and then proven to me the value of going the extra moment um Pausing, trying to see something from a different perspective, a slightly deeper level. So I know when we invest, one of the
1: things that we're trying to do is we're trying to overcome our biases. So we um we tend to make snap decisions. Uh, we trying to want to avoid making that so way stereotype or heuristic, and, and and obviously first impressions is a is is a pitfall sometimes. But um let's just go back to to meeting your wife for the first time. What do you,
0: what do you remember about that? Good question. Good question. So I I, I had. Um, Lived in Brazil years before that, so I already spoke Portuguese. I had uh, gone back to Brazil. My brother wanted to visit the country. I was living in Africa at the time. We went for a trip to have a New Year's Eve, sort of roundabout New Year's Eve, Christmas time trip around Brazil. And that part of it was very beautiful. Happened to be at a party through some friends. Uh, saw my, my, my wife, met my wife um, at the time. Her friend who she was there with, also a doctor. Um, their colleagues, she uh, in Portuguese said very clearly, get away from him now, get away from him now, and then grabbed <laughs> her hand and started pulling me, pulling her away. And I was thinking, well, what is going on here? So, I spoke Portuguese very quickly, as quick as I could. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> and and then I realized in the northeast there of the country, there is a long, awful tradition of, uh, let's say, um almost people smuggling, but maybe exploiting yeah. young females of darker skin color, taking them to Europe in various countries and an awful set of history there for, for, for a number of decades. And and so that was – when I overcame that, it was good. We started talking. It was great. And, and um, then I ended up spending quite a bit of time with her for the next couple of weeks uh, in the country before going back to Africa. And I have to say on the second time I – something about the second uh, time I met her was – it, it just told me straight away, this person's actually very, very, very different um, and completely unexpected. And I hadn't thought of living back in Brazil before, but then that changed everything for me in my life. And I eventually came back to that part of the world and we, we we created a life together.
1: Excellent. So, you know, interesting there, Brazil, Africa, Brazil, you know, sort of moving around um, countries that, that many listeners will be, will be less familiar with. Um, maybe you can take us through sort of that journey and I guess I guess why you were there in the first place.
0: Let's start with Brazil, maybe first time. Sure, yeah. sure. So I think uh, the first time I went to Brazil was while I was still at Bain & Company, the management consulting firm. And I had already decided to uh, make a transition from the private sector after a few years at Bain. Great learnings, lots of challenge, all kinds of good, exciting stuff. But I remember very clearly a uh, a manager of mine, Duncan Peppercorn, a bit of a character is in the social sector here as well but he said you know what you you, you just really aren't into this work yeah. and i kind of knew that and i kind of knew it was only for a certain period of time but hearing that called out kind of prodded me a little bit to think okay let, let me think a bit longer term of what i want to be doing when yeah. and see what what a transition might look like to something that looks like more social sector for purpose and i think a lot of the language even back there 20 years ago wasn't as sophisticated and developed as the language is today no. Long story short. So then I managed to get a uh, a leave of absence from Bain to explore the social sector. Yeah. And then through some contacts with Bain in in Sao Paulo who I already knew, I uh, started working with uh, the foundation in its early phase of Beto Sicupira. And Beto Sicupira was one of the 3G capital guys who invest with Buffett, um, billionaire. And so I went to Brazil and uh, was working with him on a strategy for the foundation, very small foundation, and then helping train his two program managers. Came back to Bain, uh, kept working, finishing it up, but then realized, um, I, I think I should get a job in an area of the social sector where perhaps it's, it's there's a bit more of the, of the challenge of the coal face and a kind of understanding of what's working and what's not. And I saw Sub-Saharan Africa as, um, a region of the world with all the literature yeah. that was written about the development project and all that kind of good international international efforts to to reduce poverty had kind of failed yes. many times over. I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to make a career out of this over the long term, I better not be making a misstep. And it's probably not it, it, it's possible for me to continue flying around in helicopters and, and and doing something that's a little bit higher level. But I think I better get to the roots of this and figure out. What, what has worked and what has not worked in, in perhaps mo- the most challenging contexts. And I tried to get a job, I wrote to all these different organizations, yeah. didn't get a single job, they just said, sorry, flat out. The only way to get a, a job 20 years ago in African um, international development was to have worked in African international development. Right, So That's it's a very so close shot. Today yeah. there's probably different options. And then the only option I got actually was through TechnoServe, which had just started a program to hire the odd uh, BCG Bain or McKinsey consultant. Yeah to do a short stint to help them with sector analysis because it was about agricultural supply chains yeah. and then that was how I got the job with Technoserve, thinking it was going to be a stepping stone yeah. was meant to go to Mozambique with Portuguese ended up in in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania um but it was fantastic work so then I spent the next 12 or 13 years with them all over the world so
1: you had been an analyst or a consultant if you like and you you moved across to the the social sector as an analyst or a consultant, so it was probably a less dramatic step than than perhaps I imagined um, when I'm thinking how hard it would be to leave
0: the dream job at, at Bain that, that many people would aspire to. In, in some senses, yes. Uh, I was only still a pretty junior person at Bain. I'd only gone at one level, was, was sort of looking at the next level. Um, and so many of the things that I was doing as a senior associate consultant at Bain, I then was purposed to doing with, uh, the cashew nut sector yeah. in, in Tanzania on a regional basis because it's a, it's, it's a big source of cash income for some of the poorest, uh, farming families on the coast of, the coast of Africa. So some of those things were similar. Yeah. It quickly became incredibly different. So it quickly became 14 hour, four by four trips, meeting with local regional commissioners, talking about tax policies. Uh, the next day being with a set of pharma cooperatives right out in, in the bush someplace miles from kind of anywhere that you'd ever heard of. And then the next day back in the capital doing analysis on, on the sector and then talking to potential business uh, entrepreneurs who could set up processing factories because that was a way of capturing more value. And so suddenly the the very narrow scope of providing some analytical support became totally blown open to this entire universe of stuff that I, I didn't have much experience in. Yeah. And so then I had to rap- rapidly find the people in that organization and others who could really help orient me to things that I knew I had the skills to be able to do, yeah. but such a different context that I needed to know very quickly if I was kind of pointed in the right direction, north or south. Yeah. Um, and that and that took a bit of while a while to, to get my head around. Yeah. So what are your, I
1: guess, uh, Fondest memories or what your best experiences that you, that you had in your in your time in Africa. What what would you really jump out for you?
0: Yeah, there were there were just so many. It was it was it was staggering. I worked across so many different countries. I was, was so fortunate. I was in, with incredible people from all the local teams who were deeply experienced um, agronomists. And I, there were just so many experiences. I think one of them, which then led to this this project, I guess, which which I'm, I'll be connected to hopefully for the rest of my life, was. Uh, I, I, I'd asked when a buddy came across to bring across a kayak because right down on the border was Mozambique. It was real sort of disconnected, not connected to anything. Even the roads were, were, were pretty tough to get there. Uh, and so I thought, what, what am I going to do? There's beautiful coastline. There's, all this, there's a gazetted National Marine Park that the marine biologist was still down there actually working on it. And so I asked them to bring across a, a, a kayak that I could pump up and then go kayaking. So I started kayaking up and down the coast a little bit. And on one of these kayak trips, I then found this plot of this, this piece of land that was, it's like a thousand-year-old, unfortunately, Muslim slave port that was sort of the mixed African Bantu Muslim community that, that had developed as a civilization along the Swahili coast for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this was one of the old ports with all these broken down old, old ruins in that little town and then a piece of land on the peninsula. And I thought, my goodness, that is the most beautiful piece of land I've ever seen. That's amazing. And this, this part of the world and there's these traditional Dow boats coming up and down. And then that, uh, I asked my then colleague at the time, who's my business partner in the, in the Mesa Community Partnership, uh, little business we have there. You know, who lives there? What's going on there? And he said, well, that, that's, uh, that's a local village and it's got a traditional village title since 1975 with independence under New Erie. And the local villages were given these little bits of land, but they never farmed them because they're a traditional Swahili fishing village and they fished for probably the same way for, you know, 1500 years. Thought, oh, God, that's so interesting. And then, and then we, we, we came up with a plan. Okay. This thing has potential at some point in time in the future for potentially tourism. Yeah. And then you could imagine some sort of inclusive, and there's, there's, this village this incredible little village, totally cut off from every kind of service you could imagine, and really quite hard up in terms of lack of resources. They wanted their own school, they couldn't get a school, they couldn't really raise the attention of the government for anything. So we thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're to start a little company, yeah. and then we're going to see if we can have a little plot of that land. And, and then we're going to start a bit of a tourism, um, sustainable tourism kind of venture, social venture to create some jobs and create a bit of connectivity. Over time, other ideas have come in and there's, a, there's an incredible opportunity there for marine conservation, community-based marine conservation based on a model out of Brazil that turns out Bertolt Superpita and that foundation was funding back in the day. But, um, and, and so, that as an experience has now become uh, a slow burn Project that we've got up and running. We just hosted our our, our first local wedding uh, there the other day. We have a little bar, a little restaurant. There's a little education facility. I brought a marine biologist from Brazil across there, and so that that that, that that's that experience is, is really something that stands out from something that was as nice as kayaking up and down the coast and snorkeling off the kayak to then finding a location to then put together something that hopefully would be meaningful sustainable impactful for the local community and and really interesting and exciting and so we visit back to that place uh, every year with my kids for a week and then and, and and just keep the ball rolling and moving forward on the on on the project
1: so this is a Long, long term investment. It's it's, a long, long term
0: investment. So it's 15 years. It took us 15 years to get the, uh, it wasn't surveyed that part. So it took 15 years to actually survey the area. And it was a case of outlasting uh, 20, 30 attempts to, you know, uh, ask for bribes with different um, governments and different levels of uh, administrators. Everyone coming in thinking, well, we've got this guy because we'll be able to ask for something. He's this, is this foreigner for sure. He's yeah. going to pay us a bit of a bribe. And, and we outlasted him. And so 15 years, and that's about really being patient, which, which I've, I've struggled with over the years to realize some things just take a long time. You can't force them. And if you force a, a quick solution, it often comes with, with negative consequences. And that for me is a, is a great example. It came through during COVID, the, the, the full titling of the property, that is a great example of it, it. Some things just take time, you have to be patient and it might take two or three times what you expect. Um, but the results are usually better if you don't try to force something faster than it will go. And so that's worked for you on a small scale, on, on, a, on a big
1: scale, you know, you talked about 20 years ago when you you looked at, at Sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. things just did not work. Mm-hmm. Has that changed in that time or, or, you know, is your example here sort of better than
0: most well, I realised after working with with TechnoServe and seeing all these other not-for-profits um, that that was my outside-in perspective, and a whole bunch of the literature was just kind of unconscious bias uh, using a single, simple narrative to, to describe the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, which is ridiculous in in retrospect. Getting there. Um, I, I am firmly of the belief, and this is what led to my, um, what I think is a, is a really powerful way to think about social, positive social change, and that is a systemic approach. And so never just jumping in with your first solution. Yes. When there's a problem or, or or an issue presenting itself in a good case, so there's there's poverty and and a, and a community might not have enough money for even absolute bare basic needs. And the first response that you can think of is we'll give money, and then it might be we'll give a bit of credit, or it might be give some inputs and this, and put another put a tin roof on the house. Yeah. There is always a place for crisis response. There is always a place for a very human response and and, and well intentioned gift uh, that will almost never uh support empowerment and sustainable change that communities lead themselves over the long term. So what you have to do then is step back. You have to be an ingredient as an outsider. And most of the people coming up with the solutions have to be local and from that community. And then you have to make minimal change possible or contribute to minimal change possible because there are often communities that have the least ability to withstand risk and change. And then it takes a long, long Long time, and and uh, in an environment like many of them in rural, relatively poor, low income contexts in Africa, uh, they, they just aren't the resources to make change quick. When resources actual resource extraction occurs, that can be a quick change. Catastrophic consequences usually. So this means what what that TechnoServe work taught me: taking a systemic view and thinking what's really going on here and then working with the production systems and within the, the cultural settings that exist, then you can think about ingredients that you can add for the community to take on or not their choice to then do what they're already doing better. And that will usually be relatively incremental and it will usually take many, many years. And so with agricultural cycles, um, I, I quickly learned that you don't talk about anything under really five years yeah. as a relevant time frame to assess impact or aspire for impact. And it's usually 10, 15, can be 20. And I look back at some of that work that we were doing there. And I think of work in coffee and cocoa and cashew and all these different cash crops as just examples of of supply chains that that farmers are engaged with. It didn't all work. But the stuff that did work, you're able to uh, if you are very keenly interested in the learnings that are being thrown off every year as you go through each agricultural cycle and you feed them back into improvement of the knowledge transfer and the improved production techniques or whatever whatever the program might be, you can see absolutely incredible changes being brought about in whole regions of countries with potentially millions of people, hundreds of thousands of, of, of farming families. And that only comes about from a very, very long-term perspective, from a very learning mindset and uh, a, a, a deep systemic approach to it to actually look for what is really going on that could be addressed that can then support change that sticks over the long term rather yes. than racing in with the more obvious treating the symptom solution so when did you arrive at that was that in africa
1: or is that moving back to brazil from there or where was this i guess Eureka I, moment for
0: you. I, I think I saw a lot of the work in Africa reach a certain scale, yeah. uh, even over the three or four years that I was there in a few different sectors, and and that really had me believe that, oh, goodness, you know, it's, it's not always the cookie-cutter solution. It is the systemic approach, and then I think that moving back to Latin America for the next decade, um, that was only brought home again and again and again, particularly because in Latin America, having been in that African context, coming back, Back to the Latin American context, you have an entire, from Haiti and the Caribbean, you have from Haiti all the way down to places like Chile, you have quite middle income, upper middle income countries, all the way down to countries that are really lower income. And then that forces you, if you're to do any kind of meaningful, significant work that that has impact, has any chance of it, forces you to go deeply into the context and think, take that systemic perspective to say every context is different we have to look at what the levers of change possibly are not be idealistic about it and then think about realistic uh, timeframes yeah so then if we
1: look back or we bring that back to australia which is a high income country yes what are the differences here and how have you in the i think what 5 years now you've been back in australia how have how have you taken the the learnings from these lower income countries and, and what have you been able to do in this country?
0: Yeah, I think looking from afar, I was thinking, wow, you know, what 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 is the meaning of all this in, in my understanding or lack of for the Australian context and what's going on in Australia? And I kept thinking about that. And as we, we plan to then come back to Australia with the kids for, you know, th- things were complex on a personal level because there's just a lot of violence. And if you have an option like Sydney, you, you, you kind of want to come back here and have your kids experience something that's quite calm. Um, as I thought about that, I looked at Australia and said, "What am I going to do there that maybe takes some of these learnings?" And I got in touch with a couple of people. Duncan Peppercorn, funny enough, the manager from Bain had actually gone to this organisation, Social Ventures Australia, and he knew one of the people, one of my colleagues at TechnoServe, coincidentally. And so, TechnoServe, what the uh, SVA wasn't a thing when I left the when I left the country. I heard about it, I looked at it, and then I realized one of my other colleagues, ex-colleagues, I worked a little bit on succumbing at Pacific Equity Partners in private equity with Rob Koska, who was the CEO of Social Ventures Australia and now the chair of Social Ventures Australia. And I thought, wow, okay, let me talk to Rob on a visit back here. And he was talking this kind of overall systemic related to policy, deeply understanding context kind of game. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's interesting. That's the way. Surely you need to take that kind of approach in a context which has so many of the pieces of the puzzle in place and does a pretty good job of supporting most of its citizens, like Australia, but consistently misses out on supporting 20, 25% of Australians to to live a life of dignity. I thought, well, that that that's an organization I'd like to join and bring some of the learnings to and see how I can contribute. And it was exactly the same. It was a very similar systemic lens with a very different context that you bring to it with all of these incredible levers and pieces of the puzzle that are already in place in the Australian setting in such a such a such a fantastic country. Um, and then that encourages you to work in a, in a bit of a different way because it's all about um, a disadvantaged lens. It's not just income poverty. And it's about really getting clear about why the well-funded services and supports can't be accessed by a certain group of Australian citizens and, and 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 consistently over time, generation after generation. So surely we can do better than that, especially after we've done 30 years of Australian economic growth. And that's the organisation I just finished up with. Fantastic place and really takes that that same perspective, which I think is really powerful.
1: Do you think it's easier or harder to make an impact in Australia than it would be in a Haiti or Tanzania or, or Brazil well
0: I, I think it depends and the impact is so different yeah. I think the you can aspire to much deeper perhaps more long-lasting more complex change in Australia because you 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 know that there's not going to be a, a political coup yeah. you know that uh, there might be environmental crises and, and and issues but the 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 list of things that can go wrong in australia is less um, and there's less left field kind of things and things that will completely wipe wipe the slate clean and then the the amount of resources that are available from different sources principally the government from taxation revenue is is so much greater yes if you're in south sudan you don't have tarmac roads so any kind of impact that you can support a coffee farmer that's where that's where coffee came from Ethiopia and South Sudan and so they have a real competitive advantage great great way for them to um for communities to earn income but you're just hoping that you can get some extra dollars into a farming family's pocket you, you can't aspire to a radical change in the education system or long-term governance improvement in how the country's run that's a that's that's a ways off and it's and it's really for the people of South Sudan to, to decide
1: you talked at the beginning about this idea like we we are who we are we bring let's say baggage we 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 bring background you know you went down a path this classic career path of you know management consultancy etc today you've gone in a very different direction you've done some fascinating things and some great things um where do you think that really you know, can we can we sort of really get deeply into i guess the origin of that or how you how you cross that divide. Because I think a lot of people would like to do it. A lot of people think they would like to do something good. You've done it. You've made that change. You've like not looked back. So can you just sort of pick that apart for,
0: for the listeners? Sure. I, I think you know, I've reflected on this a lot because I, I can't, if I look back even at my 22 or 23 year old self, there's no way that they would have predicted uh being married to my wife speaking of languages and having these different experiences it just wasn't even on the on the on the on the agenda at least um consciously so so thinking back I, I think there's there's an, a very lucky hand being dealt to me early on to have a, a, a great upbringing and, and and very comfortable calm environment if you look at all the early childhood development research and all the protective factors, that support good childhood development. I, I think I was lucky enough to have most of those. So um, loving family, very stable, parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, really, really, really stable. Um, good role models, high expectations, but achievable expectations. So all this stuff gives you confidence. And then it, it kind of shoots you out of the barrel pretty quick yeah. and 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 gives you the sense that you can, you can achieve a lot of stuff. And I think it was, um, the motivators, in addition to having a kind of a, a really lucky setting growing up, were something that was intrinsic, perhaps about difference. And, and, mm-hmm. and I was always drawn to different cultures and different things and, and, and different people. And, and it always sparked my interest. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd say there's a. There are a lot of stories in the family of adventure yeah. um, and I, I, my grandfather, as, as many people of my generation in Australia would would share, was in the war, in, in World War II, he was a military doctor, he was in Papua New Guinea, and he had a million stories yeah. that completely blew my mind. Like he said, uh, when he used to tend to the medical problems of the local villages, someone would come from five valleys away or some distance. It's one of the highest concentrations of languages in the world, even though a lot of them have died out um, per population and per geographic size. And he would have to get up to six or seven different villages from different villages uh, in a row to be able to translate what the person who was sick, who had come to him, could say. And each would have to translate the different dialect and the slightly different language to get to the sixth one. So yep. stuff like that. It just stuck in my mind. And and so there were so many of those stories. Uh, and so there was a sense of adventure. Dad then went uh, and he was a surgeon, he was a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. So went in the Troubles to Belfast to be a surgeon, to learn from some of that trauma surgery that was happening, unfortunately, during the Troubles. He then did work in the South Pacific doing pro bono surgery and and I think all that stuff just stuck with me. Um, all these different stories and, and sense of adventure and sense of wanting to create your own stories. Don't know if that's good thing or a bad thing, but it was really quite quite deep in me. And then I think there's um, th- there's a real, and I've only realized this I think a little bit later on, when I look at someone like dad, so he worked as a surgeon for 50 years, and you think, my goodness, wouldn't you get bored after 10 or 20? Maybe 30, like when you put the instruments down after 40? But then you realise when you when you read all the research from about flow, the guy who wrote the flow book, or, or or you look at that stuff around mastery of professions so that, that looks right back into the history of, of people actually understanding a profession and then and then getting mastery over it. You, you realise that there's something about a dedication to a a an activity and and, and a profession or whatever it might be in life that is, that is really special if you find the right thing for you. Yes. And so what I saw at the time were a lot of workaholics, especially with male role role models in the family. And I thought, wow, these people are working kind of hard. But then I realised later on, most of those people had, for whatever reason, found the thing that really gave them some sense of meaning in life, um, and that stuck with me. And I thought, "Wow, that's." I felt that sense of meaning as I made the transition. In hindsight, and thought, "Yeah, that was that was what was somehow drawing me from within to make the change." Also, there was a sense from the family of service. There was a sense of. Hippocratic oath. There was a sense of mum being a teacher and something more than just your day job for earning money and for putting bread on the table. And that that's a privilege to be able to to hope for something beyond that. But but there was a sense of service as well. So I think all those things combined to to have me uh, motivated to look for something beyond what was management consulting. Dabbled with private equity with a little bit of investment banking and and and. I realised that they were interesting and challenging, but weren't the thing that was going to motivate me. So something was missing. Which something was missing. So, so there's a sort of interesting thing going on, like I
1: guess in the investment world today, is that you know companies who make a profit are being asked to be more purposeful, but at the same time, I think in the charitable sector or the social sectors, companies with a purpose are also being permitted to be profitable as well. So there's a sort of intersection taking place. I guess I'm sensing
0: your sort of. General thoughts on how the the world is going. So I have thought I've thought a lot about that, having I mean, come from a private sector background and yeah. gone into that international development and then and then been at SVA, yeah. Social Ventures Australia. And uh especially that organization overseas. So they were hooked in to kind of every sort of Fortune hundred US and then the equivalent in Europe. And some of them were on the board of it. So there was there were all these big banks, all these big there's Walmart, there's all these, all these different organizations and, and mining super majors and oil and gas super majors. And, and you're looking at this and you're looking at examples of horrific Niger Delta, Venezuela where there'd been a resource curse. But then you were seeing so many settings where the only show in town was a mine. Or it was a big uh, electricity generation factory, or it was um, an oil and gas facility, and 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 that that's an example of where the the nexus that's a positive nexus between those two worlds of community needs and development and social sector and all that and the private sector, I believe, is very very small yes. for a really positive somehow win win or somehow jointly positive bargain and relationship to develop, but it is there. And when you get it right, it's staggering the scale that you can reach very quickly. So I think there's real value in being open from the community development, empowerment, human sort of community rights-based approaches to potential partnership with private sector. And there is real value for the private sector, especially in certain places where social license to operate is such a thorny issue getting it right that relationship with community and going the extra mile not doing the perfunctory stuff um, of, of just you know buying a few bits and bobs from a local community and saying we're done but actually doing something deep in that when you get that right I've seen examples and and there was a mining super major we worked with overseas six different countries many 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 different communities across all their operations and it was, really, really powerful work and and local communities were dramatically benefited from that. So if you turned your back on that, you would have missed an opportunity. The stars have to align though. And there are many ways to do it wrong. There are probably only a few ways to get it right. And I think there are still in the world, probably a lack of examples, many examples of getting it right over the long term. So I think perhaps a
1: good place to finish the example you gave us earlier of your own experience from Tanzania
0: is maybe a, a micro model for the future? It, 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 it's a micro model and it only ever will be. And I think it's important to recognize and be really realistic about that's not designed to scale necessarily. Maybe it can hook up with other organizations and communities in the way that the marine conservation model that it's based on now out of Brazil has done yeah. and created massive change for five turtle species over 30 years. It's, it's, it's staggering the amount of change it's created. But the, the, the experience and the, and the location in itself it's not designed to suddenly multiply and, and rapidly scale. Yeah. And so it's being very clear eyed again and coming back to the analysis of the systemic analysis and the really getting behind what the strategy is over the long term and being very true to yourself on that. I think I, I accept that that is a very small experience on a single plot of land in South Tanzania. Yep.
1: Yeah. But something that most people never. We'd have the opportunity to conceive or or to deliver. So it's a great great thing to have.
0: It, to have it, done. it is, and, and a great privilege, and and something exciting, and 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 something terrific for the family and for the for the local community. I hope.
1: Excellent. Well, to me, um, you know, fascinated by by what we've talked about, um, you know, the, the experiences you've had and the um and the value that you have created for the community. So, Dave, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank
0: you, Doug. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.